to be awake to those gems that arise out of open, free emotional writing and journaling. Really powerful. And sometimes you will find yourself using quite a bit of the material especially if you're writing the personal essays or memoir. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello again, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today... I'm very pleased to introduce to you Albert Flynn DeSilver. Now, when I was first approached by Albert to be on the Author's Corner, what really inspired me was that he suggested that we talk about how writing can be a pathway to self-awareness. And this is something that I've observed in over the past, you know, couple of decades of helping aspiring authors to write their first book. And I think it's something that is so vital to the process, the transformational process of becoming an author is really about the new levels of self-awareness that are available when you embark on this incredible endeavor of writing a book. And so Albert and I, you are about to hear, really have a great conversation exploring different aspects of the dynamics of this. And he is a wonderful person to speak to this because he is a writer in so many ways. He is a internationally published poet, also has written nonfiction prose books. He's a workshop leader and speaker, and his latest book is Writing as a Path to Awakening. And he also teaches a workshop based on the same name, but his book was published by Sounds True, which is a terrific independent press. Albert also served as Marin County's California's very first poet laureate from 2008 to 2010. His work has appeared in more than 100 literary journals worldwide, and he also is the author of a memoir called uh, Beamish Boy, which Kirkus Reviews called a beautifully written memoir, poignant and inspirational. Albert received a BFA from the University of Colorado and an MFA from San Francisco Art Institute. He also is a speaker and trainer who has taught writing workshops for the Esalen Institute, the Omega Institute, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and at literary conferences nationally. So sit back, make yourself a cup of tea, and let's explore how writing helps us awaken. So Albert, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you so much, Robin. Delighted to be here. I'm so happy to have you here because when I saw your most recent book, yes, Writing as a Path to Awakening, Mm -hmm. I immediately was excited to speak with you because this is something that my clients have heard me talk about 
from time to time or actually quite frequently is, in my opinion, I think one of the best things about authoring a book is what you can gain in self-awareness. Yes. Yeah. So I'd love to have you share with us a little bit about what led you to write this book. Wow. How much time do we have? (laughs) The whole story. As much as you need. (laughs) Well, I wrote a whole memoir about that. I was born in... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think what led me... Well, honestly, the initial impetus was around some workshops I was teaching. And my path is sort of a parallel path of poetry and mindfulness meditation practice. And so when I... I actually am trained as a photographer and uh, went to undergrad school, majored in photography, went to grad school in photography, and then I have a whole story. I don't know if we have time for it here, but I wound up getting sent to a poetry reading and it sort of changed my life. It was kind of one of these catalyst moments. Well, wait, I'd like to hear. Okay. (laughs) Who was reading? What? Okay. 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 Well, I'll tell the story. So I'm in graduate school at the Art Institute in San Francisco, and I fail my year-end review, which is kind of hilarious. Like, how do you fail at art? So they make me do it over, and I do some, like, completely batshit crazy installation thing that makes no sense. But, you know, and only one of the professors shows up, and he's like, oh, this is pretty good. (laughs) So that's what you get for your 15 grand a year. Right. Which probably sounds like a bargain, right? I know these days, right? (laughs) But anyways, when I was there, we all had to go through Bill Berkson's art history class in order to graduate. And it turns out Bill Berkson was not only an art historian, but an art writer and a poet. And I mean, not just like kind of a poet. I mean, he was a major New York school poet. He knew everybody back in the day in the 50s and 60s. And there was this one night that he was, I ran into him in the photo lab or something. And he was like, hey, there's this poetry reading down at the Cal Theater. You should come check it out. And I was like, I'm not that in. Why would I want to come check that out? I'm not really into poetry. And he said, well, I'm going to be reading and some other poets and it'll be kind of interesting. And I was like, I'm, all right. I didn't have anything going on. So I go down to the Cal Theater and it's this all-star cast. Diane DePrima is there and Lynn Hegenian and Ron Paget from New York and Alice Notley has flown in from Paris. And it's just like total mind blower. And there was the introduction. This was actually the launch reading for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. And oh <laughs> yeah, so it was a big, it was kind of oh, a big a deal. poetry reading. Yeah, right. This was not some cafe reading, right? Right. Um, and uh, Paul Hoover is giving the introductory spiel and he ends up quoting Jack Spicer, this legendary Bay Area, Berkeley Renaissance poet from the 1950s. And the line that I heard was, unbind the dreamers, poet be like God. <laughs> And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, it just sort of blew, like when I had hair, it blew the hair back off of my head. And um, I was just totally smitten, you know, and I started reading Spicer and I started reading, you know, Audre Lorde and Alice Notley and all these just amazing poets that were in the anthology. And that was it. You know, that was the thing. That doesn't answer your question, but I can weave back in here. So around this time, it was like maybe a year or two later, I was driving out to West Marin and I I was riding with a friend. We drove by this um, place that I read on the sign 
that I thought it said Spirit Rock Mediation Center. And I thought to myself, why is there a mediation center out in the middle of nowhere? And my friend's like, oh, stupid, that's meditation. (laughs) So eventually she was like, hey, you should come check out this meditation thing. It's Jack Cornfield is there and he he talks a lot about mindfulness and I didn't really know anything about this. But I go to this Monday night thing and he's quoting all this poetry and reciting, sharing poems and talking about, you know, opening your heart and, you know, deepening consciousness and expanding creativity. I was like, what? (laughs) So I got totally kind of into that journey and on that path. And I started going regularly. And so they were like these simultaneous things happening for me. Yeah. Isn't it funny how Sometimes it just seems like things are not just lining up, but they were actually put in front of you. (laughs) Go here next. (laughs) I know. It was so great because I was a total mess, you know, and I just did not know what I was going to do. Like, you know, you finish graduate school in the arts and you're like, I I have no, like, place on this planet. Like, nobody's going (laughs) to hire me for anything. And I'm of no use. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) So... Yeah, it was good to get some grounding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did not read your entire book, but the little bit that I saw is that you really do seem to weave in the mindfulness and the spiritual work as part of this path. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard road, right? I mean, being a writer is tough. Being any kind of artist is tough. And, we, you know, we're not supporting the society. There's little, if any, financial remuneration. That's <laughs> it. And unless you're really lucky or just super insane worker, but so we have to, you know, we have to figure out how to balance our lives around it. And so I just found that practice to be really, really powerful. And then you couple that with the fact that, you know, being a creative person is about ideas, right? So it's about being in your head and we can get addicted to our thoughts and go down all kinds of various rabbit holes. <laughs> and so I just found this whole practice of mindful breathing and, you know, mindful movement, you know, sort of yoga practices and things to really support a balance in my writing practice. And so. And I noticed that you move through the book in seasons or by month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that these are all reflections of certain seasons of the process is how I interpreted that. So say more about that, because I thought that was a really interesting choice. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about, we have emotional seasons, right? So I just thought like the seasons would be really kind of amazing. And it just seemed like a kind of a fun and interesting framework to structure the book and to have it be kind of an evolution. So people could come to it as a practice on a monthly basis, a weekly basis, a daily basis, and kind of move through things. And actually, if they stayed, not if, when they stay the course and keep writing consistently, they will, you know, my sort of value proposition is that you will, you'll see transformation. You will experience yourself in a more creative way. You know, and you probably witness this all the time, you know, in your own practice with your students that when you provide kind of an open space for people's creativity, not like permission in the permissive sense, like I hereby anoint you able to, right? But like the permission, like, yes, you can do this encouragement, you know, possibility. And I've always seen that in other writers that I love. 
you know, and they were funny nobodies at one point as well. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I mean that what you're saying, just there's so many things rushing to my mind <laughs> We're competing now. So I'm trying to get everybody get the traffic, the traffic monitor is getting up. Because one of the things I think that there is actually an element of permission, you know, I've had many times I've been working with someone that, you know, they're thinking that there's something they'd like to say, but they have a concern of how it would land or, mm-hmm. you know, need to insert whatever they're afraid it's going to be too much of. And I find so often that, you know, what they say is really their truth. And once they've said it, they realize it's really not that scary, you know, to just let it be in the world. And that is really how they feel. And it's legitimate, you know, it's like absolutely a valid point or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. And so I think that there, it does help if you can give that to yourself. And one of the things that I would, would always say to people is that, you know, just write it. It's just us. Mm-hmm. Just write it. Yeah. And then if it doesn't feel right, or you hate it, or we want to change it, we can change it. It's not being published just between us. Yeah. And I do that in my own journaling, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's Let between it you out. and great. Yeah. Between you and great spirit, like anything goes, you know, you can curse it all out. You can be a terrible writer. You can be a great writer. You can be a mediocre writer. It's all good. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and so coming back to this old mindfulness bit, that helps too with the fear piece mm-hmm. and the self-recrimination piece and the doubt and the procrastination. Because once you start to see those experiences in a larger context, you're able to, it's not like they ever go away necessarily, <laughs> but that you see them for what they are and you can talk to them and you can yes. talk yourself off the cliff. And just get back to the work. It's like, no, I got to tell my truth. This is what I signed up for. I'm telling my truth. You shut up now. And (laughs) we'll, you know, we'll create space for you somehow some other time. But I got work to do. Describing my morning this morning, right? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, all right, you know, you have to show something to the person who's helping you with this piece you're writing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You've been avoiding writing this one section. What are we going to do? (laughs) show up with nothing or write and it sort of turns out (laughs) that like the more honest and vulnerable you are the more people appreciate it right so true i mean i just finished reading this book of essays by chelsea is it hotter i want to say hotter i don't know why i might have that (laughs) sorry what not chelsea handler no, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> Although that would be totally entertaining and great too. Totally. <laughs> um, no, Chelsea, it's, I think it's hotter. Anyways, she's this young woman who's writing about being a woman and being, you know, in her feminine place. And she's sort of like grounding herself in her power by writing into, in a very innovative kind of wild way about, you know, various crazy relationship she had in high school and early in college and as a young adult. And I just found it really kind of interesting and fun. And the way that she was able to be intimate with the reader in this sort of offhanded but smart way was very just powerful, you know, and we can do that. And you sort of, you really, I find I have to just 
sort of force myself into it because that those voices of doubt and like comparison mind are always coming in there and be like, who are you to say that? And that's not <laughs> your place. And is that really your voice? And yada, yada, yada. Right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about voice when you were describing Chelsea, whoever she is, but you know that because it sounds like what would you have to say about voice as it comes to like, what shifts do you notice in voice as you're writing you know, with this mindfulness and as this path to awareness, because I would imagine there might be some evolution there. Yes, evolution is the word and maturity of voice. And I think kind of like synthesis, because really what we are is we're synthesizers. Every human is a synthesizer, you know, to take on, you know, and be like, this is my voice and I'm so great. That's just BS, you know? And I think the more that we commit to the process and the practice, the more our own sort of unique voice emerges out of that. We can't, I think it's perfectly okay to just to be a mimic, you know, at the beginning and to find your heroines and your heroes and just go for it and be like, oh, I want to write like that. I'm going to write like that and just go for it. I mean, don't copy, don't ever plagiarize, but, you know, pick up on styles, you know, And explore a lot of different styles. And after a while, you start to just your own voice and your own experience and your own perception start to play in. And that's when it starts to become really interesting because you're like, oh, okay, this is my unique angle because this is my unique experience. And this is my emotion. This is how I really felt. (laughs) And you always grab, I mean, I always gravitate to very particular voices and people who I'm inspired by. And I let myself be inspired by them. Don't worry about oh, I'm going to sound like so-and-so. Yeah, it's funny. I'm also a musician, right? And it's a lot like mm-hmm. music. Like, yes. And I do a lot of covers because, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's how you get to play in front of people when you're yeah, done. Yeah. And I personally, as a listener, love to listen to a cover that's done a little different. Yes. I don't want to hear the person who's trying to sound exactly like the recording because then I'm just thinking it's almost as good as the recording. But I'm not really (laughs) listening to what's happening in front of me. And I think that one of the ways to get there is actually something that one of my teachers taught me over the years is to take a song that you're preparing to cover for and sing it in all these different ways. So like, Mm -hmm. sing it like Elvis would sing it, sing it like Bob Dylan would sing it, sing it like Yoko Ono would sing it, you know, and then sing it your way. And it's easier to find once you've played with some of these other styles, it's easier for you to find your own, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, one of my favorite books that I got turned on to as a young poet was a book by Ted Berrigan called The Sonnets. And there are these collage poems. He studied the sonnet form like intensely over years and really practiced the sonnet and, you know, musically and Uh, structurally and all of it. And he wrote this like really interesting book that was a collage of, speaking of Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan lyrics, overheard bits of conversation from parties, Shakespeare's lines, you know, he just like pulled all this stuff together. And you're kind of like, wait, isn't that cheating? Is that like plagiarism? And then you read these things and they have somehow Berrigan's own, like his sensibility, his emotionality, it all just like blooms forth in this really like unexpected, unexplainable way. It's such a cool book. 
That sounds really cool. Yeah, and there's a reason that it's a link for that book we can put in the show notes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Link <laughs> uh, like your book, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great because he's sort of a legend in New York school world of the 50s and 60s and yeah. well, 60s and 70s more. And his story is really interesting. And um, I got to know his sons. He has two sons who are both poets and Eddie is a musician. And his wife is Alice Notley. He's an incredible poet and a huge influence on me. I've just, I love her books. I love her work. And she's just so fascinating, wonderful. And that was just such a good lesson for me in terms of voice, figuring out voice. And we coming back to this thing about permission, it's like, you know, allowing yourselves to practice in throughout the whole tradition of writing, like going back, you know, oh, yeah. 500 years or a thousand years, you know, you love Rumi, like read Rumi out loud, rewrite a Rumi poem in your own. If you think about the translations, they're right. so far off the original <laughs> version that you know, they're all basically kind of collaged rewrites anyways on a certain level. So I think it, once you start to think about the language as malleable and as evolving, it's a liberation. It got me thinking of rewriting Chaucer. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about... I mean, if I could read the Old English better, but it would be some you know, pretty rompy, raunchy stuff a lot of Yeah, that. fully, fully. <laughs> <laughs> that could be an interesting book actually <laughs> yeah i know there is this kind of trend to, of rewriting a lot of some classics from the feminine perspective especially yes which is a kind of an interesting concept mm-hmm. and yeah. taking it away from the male gaze you know and, yes. and taking it yeah. you know from an empowered female sexuality perspective like mm-hmm. how cool is that yeah, my daughter, I'm going to, she wrote a great piece when she was in college and she was studying with Christopher Benfey at mm. Montpellier as, as her writing mentor. And she wrote an essay um, taking the point of view of Rumpelstiltskin's wife. Oh, nice. <laughs> it was killer. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That sounds totally great. Yeah, it was really, and, you know, it was so eye opening because when I was growing up, <laughs> that stuff was just spoon fed to you with no invitation for critique whatsoever. <laughs> so. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So as you're leading, so you also teach a course on this. So I don't know, what are some of the things that you find typically come up for people that you find particularly interesting or challenging or, you know, it seems to be kind of a, a lot of the classic stuff that we, <laughs> that we always, that we all feel and we all uh, struggle with at different levels. You know, perception of time is interesting. The whole thing about time in my mm. book, because we all like, like, oh, you know, I don't have enough time to write. Um, oh, yeah. Speak to that, because that is a biggie. That's a big objection people have. Yeah, it's just nonsense. <laughs> of course you have time to write. <laughs> you know, it's like, I remember there's this specific radio program out here. There's a book program that I'm forgetting the name of, but the guy always ended the show. And I love this. He's like, make time this week to read a good book. Mm. And he was very particular about make time. Don't like try and find time. (laughs) (laughs) Make time. And 
I never forgot that. And it's because the reality is that time is an invention. And, you know, we make time for the things that are important for us. And so how do you shift that perception of, you know, the writing as a peripheral thing that I may or may not get to a priority of like, this is essential. This is like, I need to do this for proper mental hygiene, you know, in the same way that I brush my teeth or the same way that, you know, I have a meeting, you know, for work. I mean, if it, you have to sort of establish like how important is this? And, you know, people who come to me, they're often like, oh, I really want to buy, I've always wanted to write. Da, 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 da. And then you're like, okay, well, here's how you do it. <laughs> then they're like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, I really got to show up. I have to get up a half hour earlier mm-hmm. or I have to stay up if I'm a night owl, you know, right. a half hour later to squeeze it in. Maybe you do. And I found I had to do that too. You know, I had, when I was working on my memoir and, and I wrote a novel in this seven year period, my wife and I had this business, super intense business. We ended up like a hundred employees and oh. it was like a big commute. And, you know, we were working like many, many hours, 10 hour days, et cetera. And I had to get up even earlier and squeeze in my writing time. You know, I wrote on the weekends and I just figured it out because it was like, if I didn't write, someone was going to get hurt. (laughs) (laughs) That's how essential it is for me. I would go totally crazy. And I think we have to find that real drive and belief in our own voice to move forward. Yeah. And I also think, though, that sometimes before you get to that, it's just about making the commitment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, commitment is, that's huge. And that's an internal thing, right? You can't like abstract, you have to dig sort of deep into your viscera to start showing up and that transform the behavior. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, with the time thing, you have to like go to your calendar and put it in your calendar and then set your alarm and then (laughs) Pick your pick, play. Where are you going to do this? Right. What <laughs> have, time are you going to have your tools ready? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All those little things yeah. help make it a habit. Yeah. I found, you know, broken record here, but I found that Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way mm-hmm. was so helpful yeah. to really develop a discipline around it. Mm-hmm. And it was also so interesting, right? Because with that consistency, you do get to layers that you never would get to if you're journaling once a month and just downloading all the surface crap, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. But, but when you're writing, you know, even just a few pages a day, eventually you're going to have to start excavating a little deeper. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that, that book has been so influential and for good reason. And I think, where people might also get stuck sometimes is that transition. How do I transition out of my morning pages into a project that is sort of bigger than my sort of daily thought? Not that our daily thoughts and our journals aren't really powerful and important. They absolutely are. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I've heard a lot of people say like, well, okay, so I've been writing these journals for years, and I think now I want to write a book project. I want to write maybe a novel or maybe a memoir, maybe yeah. some personal essays. What does that transition look like? So for me, what that transition looks like is reading 
very deeply in your genre of choice and really starting to learn and to excavate what is this thing that is the novel or that is the personal essay or that is the memoir. And as you start studying that, then you start to think and consider your own life and your own situations, your own characters, and you can start making that leap from personal you know, journal to personal anecdote or story, <laughs> right? That turns into a scene. Right. Um, yeah. It's a different yeah. thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, though, too, is because when I look back on that period I went through of, you know, consistently doing the artist's way for however, six months or whatever it was, because I, I have to admit, I... <laughs> I'm not doing it consistently now. <laughs> to be totally honest, not at this moment. But, you know, some really interesting things came forward. And one of them is a one-person show that I've been writing. That hmm. I didn't have any intention of, never even occurred to me. Yeah. But because of some of the stuff that came forward in that time period. And it was really, it wasn't like right away, which I think is interesting, right? It mm-hmm. was I can see a very clear connection to it, though. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's to be awake to those gems that arise out of just open, free, yeah. emotional writing and journaling. Really powerful, you know, and sometimes you will find yourself using quite a bit of the material, especially if you're writing something, you know, like a personal essays or memoir or something like that. So let's go back to the seasons. Okay. Because I think we... <laughs> We started like there with down this amazing road, but <laughs> the San Francisco and poetry and readings and things. But yeah, I'd love to just, if you could give our listeners like a little overview of how you see the seasons metaphorically intertwined with the journey of self-awareness through writing. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, the, you can think, of course, of Springtime is the time of abundance and creativity and expression, and there's a lot of vibrancy and aliveness and energy. So everything is, all the chapters are themed, right? So February is becoming, March is emergence, April is, um, what is April? April's poetry, of course, but there's a theme word, April is um, the which is blossoming. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Wait, you said, uh, oh, April is the coolest month. April is the coolest month. Of course. Yes. April is poetry. Okay, go on. Um, And May is imagination, et cetera. So as we go into summer, you know, the dog days of summer, things start to lull a little bit. And then as we go into uh, the fall, we start to go interior, right? We start to go more introspective. And uh, so there's a chapter on devotion, there's chapter editing is really about reflection, right? So it felt appropriate to have that be a thematic element later in the book. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really And then it just cycles through, right? So January's rebirth and we just yeah. go for another round. <laughs> yeah. So basically it's kind of like writing a book in a year. And going through these. Oh, and of course, the dog days is writing the middle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, we all know <laughs> how that feels. That's right. <laughs> well, and summertime is an interesting time. Some people have, I mean, I've always been kind of on this academic calendar in my 
being in school for so many years and then I taught for so many years. So this summer was always just like, ah, you know, spaciousness, time to write, time to read. And you were also inculcated, is that the term? To read during the summer, you always had summer reading list, which, sure. which I loved. Yeah. So that's part of it. There was something I was going to say about time. Oh, yeah. Just thinking about like the year as, you know, you can absolutely write a book in a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. An absolutely finished, complete, professionally edited book? Uh, maybe not. <laughs> but, you know, with structure, with goals, with support, with accountability, Absolutely. You'd be amazed. And I think people are amazed if they haven't done it before, like how much you think about the NaNoWriMo thing, you know, you commit to writing a novel in a month. Right. And of course, it's not a complete novel. It's your shitty first draft. Yeah. But when you stay consistent, uh, the, the amount of material that you can accumulate in a month time is really remarkable. Mm-hmm. And then as you stay with those words, and massage them and reread them and reflect on them, then it can turn into a book. Surprisingly quick amount of time. Yeah. And I think that the shitty first draft is such a great accomplishment. Absolutely. (laughs) When you have it, then you have something to work on. Yes. And it'll never be great until you have your shitty first draft because you don't even know what you're editing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and pra- praise be Annie Lamott for that right? phrasing. For calling that out? Yeah, because it's the way she's able to articulate is so brilliant. She is so brilliant. Yeah. I, I'm getting goosebumps on my. Yeah, stuff. she lives right and over. Word. She right over there. her name. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> I love her. Yeah, she's terrific. I remember when I had my first child, my son. My mother sent me operating instructions. Oh, that's great. And I instantly <laughs> fell in love with Annie Lamont. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So terrific. And I don't even have kids. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Oh, my goodness. Are we? Oh, yes. We're, well, we're doing okay. What were you about to say before I interrupted you again? <laughs> I can't remember. Maybe, yeah, something about the shitty first draft. We're talking about the shitty first draft and how yeah. it's you. It's a total liberation, you know, and I'm very much of a goal person. You know, I set my word count goal like this last summer. And, you know, I think it's good to scare the shit out of yourself and to, to like, I made my goal commitment public last year. I, I really wanted to explore the personal essay. So I said out loud on social media and to my community that I was going to, I committed to, I think it was 45,000 words in six months mm-hmm. and, or maybe it was four months or no, no, no it was 90 days. Yeah. Oh. 90 days. So it was June through September 1st, the end of August. And I was going to write 45,000 words towards this project. And I said, I don't, they don't have to be good words and I'm just going to, see what I can accumulate and just start the process. And I did. I ended up with 46,233 or something like that. <laughs> and then, like you say, you know, I have all this material to work with. I can start teasing it out. And since then, so that was a year ago, I now have a pretty solid 
draft and a proposal that I've just submitted to a publisher, as a matter of fact. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah, so, yeah for uh, not my next book, but the book after the next book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I just so admire a great essay, you know. A great oh, me too. Oh, God. Really and it's hard to write. It is. Good one. It's really hard to write a good one. Yeah. I don't know that everybody fully appreciates. You can be a really solid writer and suck at essays. <laughs> I know. And I hope that's not the case with me. No, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> we'll find out soon enough. <laughs> yeah. It's tricky because there's this whole level of compression that has to happen, which I think I've learned from poetry and writing poems mm -hmm. for so long, but it's different in prose, you know, there's, it's not just compression. You have to, you have to say something that's fun and interesting and dynamic and revelatory. Yes. It comes down to what's the point. Yeah. What's, <laughs> better be what's your point caller? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> is a good title for a, a book on how to write essays. <laughs> oh yeah. What's oh, your geez. point, caller? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually that's not that's really good. <laughs> we might have to put that in the idea book. There you go. Put it. Go for it. <laughs> I have a working title that's kind of goofy for my book of essays. So I might be looking for titles. <laughs> there you go. That's all right. We, we I'll credit you. Just in the acknowledgments, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's I don't need I mean. to send you a check. No, I actually have. Um, well, people who do pay me my clients, but I have a little saying that I'm, I feel like the world's secret Santa because I help these people write world-changing books. Mm, I love that. You never know mm -hmm. unless you read the acknowledgement, mm -hmm. <laughs> like not how many or for whom. Yeah, and yeah. I kind of get a kick out of that. I mm -hmm. think it makes me smile, you know? Yeah. No, that's brilliant. And sometimes I think this is something that I don't, I think people forget to now it's like, who cares about my story? You know, that's a running thread mm -hmm. through our minds often. Like who, my, I just lived an ordinary life. I don't really have that much to say, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, your story does matter. You know, your voice matters. Your, it's how you frame them, how you amplify them, how you dig deep emotionally into the humanness of these stories and anecdotes. That's what makes the resonance. And as you're able to reflect outward into the society and into the culture, so it's not just about your story or situation, but how does this echo out into the larger cultural dialogue? That's when it becomes resonant and powerful. Yeah. And I do think too, that in a lot of ways and a lot of times, the more personal it is, the more universal it becomes. Right. Yeah. Like I just interviewed Anna Lemke, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford and brilliant woman, wrote this book about dopamine nation. I was um, going to say, I think her name is familiar. That's why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific book. And she shares this very vulnerable anecdote about her own addiction to romance novels, which is like, isn't that like the greatest addiction ever? <laughs> 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 like, I just love that. But it's like, it became a real thing. It became kind of a problem in her life. And just her willingness to share that, like, you don't, you know, the Stanford neuroscientist usually isn't that vulnerable or isn't like right. sort of allowed to be that vulnerable. So I thought 
that was really kind of a beautiful experience to read and also to hear her talk about yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a gift that writers can offer to their reader is that especially when you're conveying and articulating some of these really vulnerable places or these unsaid things, that you actually giving access to your reader to a level of expression that maybe they didn't have mm-hmm. before because they maybe had a feeling but didn't have words for oh, it. Yes. Right? yes. I mean, I've had that feeling many times reading, you know, it's like, oh, when you have that moment where you're like, oh, The way it was said and the way, you know, and and, and all of a sudden it gives you access to new places. Totally. Perfect example. My next book, I'm about to launch this Kickstarter campaign in like literally a week. And this is a book about one of my great passions that I don't talk about publicly much, which is mountain biking and connection to nature and, you know, the spirit of the earth through being in motion in wild places etc. And I was inspired, partially inspired to write this book by this amazing woman who I got turned on to in college named Dolores LaChapelle, who was a researcher and deep ecologist and great, she was a scholar, a great synthesizer of earth wisdom from around the world. And she wrote about skiing in a way that I had never, like, I had never thought about, like, I had the feeling of being in wild places on skis and just being so overwhelmed by the beauty and the mountains and the energy and the blah, but I couldn't articulate it. And she wrote about it, you know, bringing in like Ida Rolf and Heidegger and like all this like cool earth wisdom stuff. And I was like, oh, that's it. And so then I, you know, when it came time for me to think about, oh, I wouldn't, you know, what would it be like to write about? mountain biking is kind of this spiritual practice. I don't think anybody's ever done that. Like I can't think of a book, you know, there's surf books about spiritual connection, there's skiing books. So anyway, so that's what I've done. And I hope that, you know, my hope is that this book will be kind of articulating that for people, you know, sort of, you know, it's that whole thing about poetry is the language of the ineffable, or I forget the exact quote from T.S. Eliot, but something to that saying what's unsayable, basically. Yes. Yeah, totally. So true. Wow. Well, that, wow. Saying the unsayable. Okay. (laughs) So that to me is the clue to go to our last question. (laughs) All right. Yes. (laughs) Which is my favorite question to conclude an interview, which is what did I not ask you that you would love to answer? Oh, gosh, that's tough. What did you not ask me that I'd love to answer? God, I don't know. Maybe something about the role of silence. Oh, yes. Please tell us. (laughs) The role of silence. Basically, it's simple that sometimes we need, you know, words need to cure, ideas need to cure. And when we get stuck, Sometimes silence is the best antidote, you know, because I don't know about the rest of you, but I can get pretty caught up in my great ideas. <laughs> and then I like don't know what to say anymore. There's too much information coming from all directions. And that's when I just go and I sit and I do nothing. And I leave 
the page behind, I leave the pen behind, and I just enter into that great field of creativity that is filled with possibility, it's filled with kindness, it's filled with understanding and compassion. And then that's where I can recharge and revision. And usually that happens in nature. Yes. Yes. But sometimes it just happens in my living room in the couch <laughs> or on the cushion. You know? Right. That's the beautiful thing. You can do it anywhere. Absolutely. Just walking to your car, remembering to take a few breaths. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. Well, Albert, this has been so much fun. And totally. I'm so enjoyed our conversation. I feel like I could talk with you for hours. <laughs> Likewise, Robin. This total joy. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Author's Corner. Delighted. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 